I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I have hit record. Okay, yeah. You, you, yeah there's something about the way you start, like... <laughs> I'm like, uh? Conducting, comporting yourself. <laughs> I uh, don't know. Uh, uh? I, I think this time I just hit record because I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were either, it was it? either that or... Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We were either that you were, Well, you asked yourself the question, what notes did I take? And <laughs> yeah. then the option was either to just read your notes or to just get on with it. I mean, even, like, I don't know. I wrote these notes two hours ago. Yeah. And I, I don't... I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. There's like yeah. a mind map, and it's like, what? What was I thinking? I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, they don't help me much. Yeah. There was something that I underlined, put some stars next to it, exclamation marked it. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. What are you gonna do? Um, you know what, Dan? What do we care? We've been involved in the real struggle today, haven't <laughs> we? We've been taking industrial action. Or uh-huh. whatever, in a very middle class way. <laughs> Hanging out on the picket line. Hanging out on the picket lines. Yeah. yeah. It's a good uh, feeling. Yeah. I don't know. I was worried going into the strikes, I guess, that it was, I don't know. I think there's been one thing on my mind, which has been like, for every strike and protest I feel like that I've ever attended or been a part of or whatever, it's always been like, there's such a social element of like, this is the cool thing to do. And if you don't do it, it's not cool as opposed to like it is the right thing to do if that makes sense and it's always been a little it's always rubbed me a little bit the wrong way but like i don't know today felt good today it was like yeah okay this is people getting together for things that actually matter um but yeah i don't know i still can't shake that like social aspect of it all if that makes sense and i don't mean social in like a marxist way i mean it in a way that's much more like your experience of going to protests is flavored by like it being the like cool thing to do and it almost seems very middle class i don't know yeah who knows well it was a it was a an experience of protesting with people who whose actual material existence yeah. is on the line that's you know? true yeah people yeah, yeah. had skin in the game skin in the game yeah and uh knew where to direct it yeah so there were um fiery speeches given yes there were and the the enemies were pointed out <laughs> yeah literally it's like geez <laughs> um, good. yeah i found it quite uplifting it was uplifting i yeah. think yeah yeah i was worried that many people were going to show up and then a good amount of people showed up so i was i was glad that it wasn't just me being an asshole by not showing up to work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was good mm-hmm. yeah. if anybody doesn't know there is a national strike by the university and colleges union which started today and lasts for another Three days, three consecutive days. Three consecutive days. Baby. Over just about everything you can imagine it being over. <laughs> because like the universities are mostly just assholes. Yeah, it's not great. Mm-hmm. It is it is more and more an American style system, obviously, which is to just say a capitalist system. And it's just, yeah, it's not great. Not great, folks. And uh, yeah, it's cool. It's funny explaining to people, though. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going on strike. And they're like, wow, cool. How long is it going to be? And it's like three days. And it's like, you know that it's going to be three days. It is very funny that it is just a like... Here are these three days where none of us will be working, and then we'll all get back to it. You know yeah. what I mean? It would be cool if it was just like a, it wouldn't end. Indefinite. <laughs> yeah, just rolled into the Christmas break or whatever, and yeah. then it was like, we'll still be on strike when we come back, and then this is figured out, but I, I don't know, it's such a big fucking thing. Yeah. People wouldn't survive it. People wouldn't survive, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, the UCU in the past have done scaling things, right? So mm. there was a really big UCU strike. I'm trying to remember whether it was the early part of 2020 or 
the early the spring term of 2019. I think they were used to use they were used to use strikes in both. Uh, I think it might be the 19 one I was thinking about where they kind of did two days the first week, three days the second week, four mm, days the next week, mm. five days the week after. Um, oh, that's cool. And it was it was it was protracted over many weeks and really did, maybe it ended up being like six or nine like the, the students mm. lost like nine weeks of teaching oh, wow. or something mental yeah when was this like 2019 I think. okay 2019. gotcha oh wow geez yeah, yeah, yeah. i would have been here for that really did they around here did they strike yeah yeah, yeah. what the hell maybe i do remember that where was i just living in a box probably wait we did it in the spring so were you was that your term abroad? no i might have been, I, might have been i think i was just working at the pub honestly so when it just gone by me but you'd think i would have known about it I don't know. Whatever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, everybody's lives are so mixed up and upside down. Nobody knows what yeah. time it is, a day it is, a yeah, year exactly. it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Man, what a joke about, like, the other local school that couldn't go on strike. I didn't know about this. That, like, here, if you want to go on strike, you have to legally, you have to have 50% of people turn out for the vote. Otherwise, you can't go out on strike. That's yeah. nuts. I yeah, didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah, 50% mm. of the members of the union have to mm. cast a ballot either way. Yeah. And then off that ballot, obviously, it has to come back yeah. 50% positive yeah. to take an industrial action. Yeah. Part of the anti-trade union laws that That's we have in this country. That's a phrase that kept getting, kept getting tossed around. Yeah. I think also to have a picket, you need to have a like dedicated picket officer, which I find very British. There's, yeah, there's a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's quite a lot of bureaucracy around picketing. What a joke. Um, yeah. Quite, well, a, yeah. Mm. quite a tame affair, really. No yeah. bricks were thrown. Or... No bricks were thrown, yeah. sadly. I, you know, yet. Not, not yet. That's true. Two more days. We'll see. I was thinking about uh, just the idea of like strikes over wages, right? And it, I don't know, this may be like a dub point, but like you're never really going to get solidaristic strikes if it's just over your field's wages, right? Because it's kind of just like, who cares? Like, obviously it's the same factors affecting everybody, but it's also like, if you're just coming out there just saying like damn, we're not getting paid a lot and we have a lot more work to do. Like, yeah, it's not like you're ever going to get other unions to join you. I mean, I know that they're like, there has been the transport strike in London that's kind of coincided with this, with the mm. underground. And they have shown like solidaristic, like, hey, right on, brother, you know, but like, yeah. Yeah, it has to affect you in, for multiple unions to strike at the same, you're not allowed to base, you're basically not allowed to like strike in solidarity, mm. I think is part of the law. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... For multiple unions to be out at one time uh, has to either be coordinated in the fashion that you describe mm-hmm. and also to there be some commonality as to what's causing you to want to strike. Mm. And I think there are also conditions over what you can and can't strike about. Mm. I think it's just pay, paying Christ. conditions. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that all relatively recent, do you know? These like anti-trade. Yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. They they were a product of Thatcherism. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha, and I guess gotcha. they came in in the late nineties, or maybe mm. they were part of a packet of laws brought in by John Major. I don't know. <laughs> One of the many things that people flogged the New Labour government for was for not repealing these anti-trade mm. union laws. Mm. And um, I do think that the 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 Conservative government since twenty ten has deepened mm. some of these laws, although I don't know for certain. Well, that's nice. It's all very nice. Yeah. It's all very nice. Yeah. I don't know. It does seem like there is. there can only really ever be one overarching solidaristic thing that gets people to come out in solidarity, and that would be socialism, right? But, like, you know, it'd be sure nice to see more of it. It was cool. A lot of the students came out and were like, hey, right on. Like, this is cool. And so that was really cool to see because, like, I don't know. I'm not, like, an academic or anything, but it is kind of a bummer being like, 
I'm not going to show up to work. Sorry. <laughs> like, I probably won't be responding to your emails. So it's like, yeah, it's cool to see that. It's cool to see that, like, people get it. And I was talking about this with someone today. Like, you know, they were kind of like, yeah, it's, I wonder what's changed that, like, you know, students are being more, like, solidaristic with, like, UCU or whatever. And it's like, I mean, this is the world they're going to have to go out into. You know what I mean? They Most of them already probably have experience with zero-hour contracts or, like, precarious work you know, or whatever. So it's like, they get it. You know mm. what I mean? Mm. So yeah, it's mm. cool. I do, I do wonder also whether a lot of them have recent experience of being messed around by universities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, well, just... Last last academic year in particular was like yeah. a total joke in terms of what the degree to which students were missold. Yeah. Uh, the uh, product, in their quotes, that they <laughs> were buying. <laughs> Ugh, the commodity of education. And yeah. I mean, that's just it too. I mean, to pay to go to school so much yeah i don't know I, yeah. it's funny like i don't know that's just a thing coming from america it's like yeah pay to go to school but out here it's like pay to go to school <laughs> so yeah yeah it's definitely, memory. it's definitely seeped its way into i remember it being quite a big feature of this sort of student mentality this idea mm -hmm. that like i have bought these things so yeah <sighs> um it's my right to receive them kind of thing yeah and they get annoyed with the lecturers they don't get annoyed with the the university yeah sure um but that's not always that's not always the the ideology that mm. the students hold obviously they're a very mixed body yeah, of sure. person yeah <laughs> um i mean to be honest it's ironic that they would get up in arms given that most of them don't show up to their lectures when they actually that's have them true do, so that's true yeah who knows? well who knows? I, mean, I don't know suffice to say good stuff made me very tired i don't know why just exhausted standing about in the cold St yeah standing about in the cold yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. I've been trying to, like, tell more people at work about, like, hey, why I'm not just going to be showing up to work for the next three days. Um, a lot of people just don't get it. And one thing, I wonder what this speaks to. Well, I guess I probably know. But, like, the co most common refrain from people who aren't in the union but are, like, you know, curious, perhaps, <laughs> is, like, um, you know, union cur curious or whatever, is that, like, but I... I like management. I don't have anything against them. They're nice people. You know what I mean? And I find that so interesting because it's like, I'm not going to be out there with like a picture of my boss's face on the sign being like, boo, you, yeah. you suck. You know what I mean? So I don't know. That's one thing that's very easy to be like, well, it's, we're not like management has no say. You know what I mean? Like maybe upper, upper management, the people we never see, but like, we're not exactly protesting our specific bosses, but I find that really interesting. It is like, it has to be this like concrete individual, like the people that I come in contact with must be why they're complaining. Um, I found that really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah I wonder if it's a matter of just connecting people to... Ideas, I mean, I yeah, guess, yeah. just like... But also, how, yeah, doing. where they fit in the bigger picture kind of thing. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, where are, like, quote-unquote, like... Because what they what they meant by that was, like, their line management, right? Yeah. They didn't mean, like, big bosses The vice chancellor of the university. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a chancellor of the university? Yes, okay. yeah, but chancellor is kind of like an honorary position. I'd like that job. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know whether it's even paid. <laughs> oh, but well, I like, don't want that job. They, they show up and they present the certificates every year, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can do that. Yeah. Hmm. And they don't get paid, huh? Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, all, socialist. all the money goes to the vice chancellor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, what are you going to do? Um, so we'll be bringing you all updates on the further UCU strikes yeah. a week after they happen. <laughs> so that will <laughs> certainly great. be more. There will certainly be more. Yeah, it absolutely. sort of feels like the UCU have just been permanently on a rolling strike yeah. since like 2011. Yeah, I know. I mean, it just seems like it's something that universities, have, I hate to say it, but have just kind of learned to live with. You know what I mean? And that's deflating. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck. But I don't know. 
What are you anyway, do? yeah. Anyway, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, all right, well, should we get into it, Dan? Yeah. Let's get into it. Okay. Tell me what we read this week, Jack. <laughs> Tell the listener. Dear That's listener. More importantly. <laughs> Dear listener, this week, uh, Dan and I dipped our supple little toes into not post-colonial thought, colonial thought, I guess, and we read um, some stuff on James Connolly, who's someone... Anti-colonial thought. Anti-colonial yeah. thought, there you go. <laughs> yeah, not colonial thought. <laughs> we read some colonial thought. Um, yeah, we wanted to read some stuff on James Connolly. We've been wanting to read some stuff on him for a while now, and we weren't sure kind of, I think, what to read of his. There's, there's some good stuff of his out there, but it's kind of hard to just pick one thing and be like... I don't know, let's just talk about this, just because I feel like I at least don't necessarily have the historical background um, to talk about something like that, like a primary source in depth. So what we did is we found an essay, as we usually do, Mm -hmm. um, by a fellow named David Lloyd called Rethinking National Marxism, James Connolly, and quote-unquote Celtic Communism. Um, And it's really interesting. It started out as one thing, I think, and kind of wound up being something else, I think, but it... First of all, it kind of tries to like de- set about parameters for defining what national Marxism is, where you can like find a nationalist thought, what nationalist thought is, how that can be useful to Marxism. Um, and then it kind of gets into a broader talk about revolutionary agency, I guess, and about like the proletariat and the colonial proletariat and how that differs from, say, uh, the pro- proletariat of the metropole. But it uses James Connolly and the struggle of Irish independence as a vehicle to have all of those talks. So it's a little bit more specific to that case. Um, I came away with it thinking that this James Connolly fellow was pretty cool. Um, I'd never really come into contact a whole lot with his thought. But um, interesting fellow. Interesting fellow. What do you think? I enjoyed this essay thoroughly and it taught me a lot about, as you say, James Connolly's thinking. Mm. Um, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's what did you say before to rescue his good name or something? Yeah. <laughs> um, given, yeah, so it sort of starts out with this sort of explanation or introduction to how James Connolly fits into the history of the movement for Irish independence and how he's kind of been lost mm. um, in amongst the the ways in which Irish history developed from sort of. For the for the late the for the latter period of the struggle for independence post the Easter Rising in 1916 and then through the birth of the th- the free Irish state, um, the the movement was largely dominated by quite conservative and uh, bourgeois um, thinkers, mm. and so James Connolly's is a a strain of thought. In, in in terms of um, the in movement for Irish independence, which has kind of been mm. forgotten and lost to some yeah. extent. Um, or at least misconstrued. I think that's kind of one point. Yeah, yeah. Part argument. of it is just like this foolish Connolly kind of thing. Because he's <laughs> sort of like, obviously he's like sidelined by the mainstream of Irish thinking around the process of independence. Mm. But then also is equally criticized by socialists and Marxists for being a sort of like, naive nationalist who yeah. entertained very romantic sentiments about um mm. the sort of like the nature of the irish working class and yeah. um the sort of alternate future that was presented as a possibility yeah yeah no absolutely i don't like i said i don't know too much about this this history but i suppose we should probably try and put Connolly in context a bit um i guess he's most well known for taking 
pretty large part as being one of, the, I think, one of the main organizers, along with the uh, Big Jim Larkin, mm-hmm. which I think is a very funny name, of the Dublin lockout, which is not something we ever learn. None of this is something we learn about in school in America. Um, but I think that, I believe that was a strike that went on for almost a year, went on for a really long time. And um, it eventually was kind of sold out by the British Labor Party or at, ver- at the very least the Trade Union Congress. Um so they all went back to work, and then tensions kind of re-escalated, eventually kind of culminating in the Easter Rising, and Connolly was a big part of that, and for his troubles, he was taken out back and shot by the British, along with a bunch of other people who were kind of co-conspirators, um, and then thus begins the, like, much longer, very troubled history. Although, like, crazy putting this in context, this was like 100 years ago. This is fucking insane. And it's like, when you put that in context of, like, this was the beginning of, not even the Troubles, like, the Civil War and everything like that, it's like, man, Ireland has a much more troubled history than, uh, at least I, from the New World, give a credit for. It's pretty brutal. Um, yeah. Makes me want to, like, I don't know, all my, like, old family from America or Australia, it's like, you can kind of talk to them about, like, World War II and stuff, but it's like, wow, I'd like to know, like, talk to some old Irish people, like, Jesus Christ, they've been through it. Um... Yeah, from my limited understanding, it kind of feels like there's this, there there are two phases almost. There's the kind of like up to 1916 and the Easter Rising uh, in Dublin and then post the quashing of that and the execution of Connolly and Mm. um, other conspirators as well. And through the, the sort of struggle for independence and civil war period leading up to 1922 when Ireland gain its independence minus the uh, northern counties that are still mm. part of Great Britain. Uh, the United Kingdom, rather. Mm. Um, a, a lot of the... It feels like a lot of the radicalism of that period of time, particularly the Easter Rising, is sort of like erased from this yeah. piece of history. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, in brief, that was briefly mentioned in relationship to the Easter Rising was the degree to which Connolly and the organisers of that saw it as a gesture toward internationalist politics and the international, the, the internationalist, well, anti-war. It was an act of defiance against the prosecution of the First mm. World War by the British state, heavily influenced by the kind of internationalist thinking that was also obviously in the heads of Lenin and... Uh, the Bolsheviks through this period as well, kind of thing. Mm. Um, so, certainly not simplistically a nationalist movement for independence, but one which was very much steeped in this internationalist socialist tradition. Yeah, absolutely. As it, as it would need to be, right? And I mean, I think going off of that, this is where like we get this phrase that I guess Connolly came up with of Celtic communism, right? Which I guess... The author here is, as we've said, like kind of trying to save Connolly's name and be like, whoa, Celtic communism isn't what you think. Because he makes the point that a lot of Marxists over the years have kind of misconstrued that as being this like romantic look to the past that you get with like fascism, quite frankly, that's like, oh, remember when we were a much more noble people back in the day and, you know, you just kind of like look past to like your heroic past or whatever. But David Lloyd, the author here is saying that that isn't what's happening at all. That isn't what Connolly's trying to do. And you have to, like, put his, quote-unquote, like, nationalism in context with the times and really emphasize the specificity of what he was talking about. There are two sentences here 
where he says, all too often leftist criticisms of nationalisms and so-called identity politics are hard to distinguish from a generalized liberal cosmopolitanism that forgets its own ethnocentrism. Above all, there's a self-confirming tendency to reduce the complex political and cultural dynamics of anti-colonial and anti-racist movements to the singular form that does hypostasize racial or ethnic identification and that is generally the hallmark of populist or bourgeois ideology. So I think it basically all that's saying is you have to recognize the specificity of Connolly's struggle. And he gets into a lot more when he talks about agency, he kind of gets into like why specifically you look to the past of the Irish people for these like anti-capitalist tendencies. Um, but it is really fascinating recognizing that like the basic like not all nationalism is bad because that like the inner liberal in me is like, no, but it is. Mm -hmm. You just need to be socialist. Mm -hmm. Whereas Connolly here is saying that like the Irish workers would be, can be pushed to a much more radical place uh, if you like merge their like anti-colonial struggle with socialism as opposed to just socialism, I guess. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And one of the things the author is really keen to emphasize in his, um, advocacy i suppose for this kind of approach to concept of nationalist marxism is to say no it's not to say that we should all be nationalist marxists now like screw <laughs> internationalism everybody should be operating in the same principles of looking to each nation's specific history and culture in order yeah. to develop its working class and the agency of a proletariat that can overthrow capitalism but he's more saying that you have to look to the specificity of each case and to understand specificity rather than what has been the tendency of very much of a lot of Marxist theory, which is to universalize in all things. Yeah. This is the only way to go about any type of historical development. This is how agency and the agency that's necessary to transform society in a socialist direction comes about. Mm. Um, very, a lot of this... The context and the theory in this essay fits very much into questions that we've been banding around for a little while as to interpretation, Marxist interpretations of history when it comes to very strict stagism yeah, and also uh, very specific and strict understandings of um, how political agency fits into the change, change of, into changes in history and ideas around a specific agent i.e the industrial proletariat and you mm. can't have other types of proletariat or working classes and the agency can't come from anywhere else it can't it can't possibly come from without capitalism yeah. um it has to be part of the development of capitalism so this essay and um the interpretation of Connolly's thinking that's being presented here is very much one of like no there is a possibility of an agency which is anti-capitalist which comes from someplace external to capitalism rather mm. than it being capitalism's development which then brings about the agent which is in a position to transform society once again so it's very much in the tradition of messy history yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah aka history yes yeah. um yeah i mean that just plays perfectly into Connolly. the quote i feel like that Connolly is most famous for which is it's something i'm gonna screw it up Something along the lines of the cause of Ireland is the cause of socialism. The cause of socialism is the cause of Ireland. And that is basically just to say, like, hey, gang, we aren't actually going to re receive independence, even if we get a, like, republic or even if we get, you know, something other than home rule from the British. Like, we're never actually going to be out from under Westminster's boot, which mm -hmm. is one of my favorite phrases, um, until we actually do the socialist thing. Um, and so, yeah, 
yeah, yeah. And what's central to Connolly's interpretation of Irish history is the way in which Irish history and the process of English colonization in Ireland has so heavily influenced the development of Irish history. Like, he's seeing Irish history through the lens of English colonialism. Hmm. Um, and is therefore saying that what is key to escaping the colonial the colonization of Ireland by England is not just kicking the colonizers out, <laughs> but it's actually also destroying the legacy of the system that they've introduced in place of what was there before, i.e. the introduction of the social relations of capitalism to Ireland by the English um, through the preceding multiple centuries, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it even, I don't know whether it was in this or whether I was looking at one of the, uh, a piece by James Connolly himself, but mm. he was almost suggesting that like, the English even kind of introduced a lot of the principles of feudalism initially into mm. Ireland. Oh, and sure. then, um, piggybacked off of that, the transition toward capitalism kind of thing. Mm. Um, and the legacy which, it, which Connolly is trying to champion is a kind of like, um, is something which stems from the sort of clan history of Ireland and sentiments around communality mm. um, and communal ownership of land. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's something that's so fascinating. Also, just like this idea, I would really like to dig into material reasons, like why the British, I suppose I should say labor bureaucracies, time and time again failed to support the Irish working classes, specifically during the Dublin lockout, right? Like... <laughs> I, I had a little bit of a heart attack because I was reading this and they were like, you know, and one of the things that spelled the end for the Dublin lockout was when the trade union Congress like uh, withdrew its support from Jim Larkin and from the movement in general. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to a UCU strike, UCU trade union Congress. I was like, no, I'm a colonizer, trade before you Dan. even reach the picket line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, the first thing it makes me think of is, I believe it was the Bukharan that we came across. It was just like one line in... Um, revolutionary strategy where he's basically just talking about the fact that uh first world quote-unquote proletariats will seemingly try to protect their position because you know in amongst the firm of the nation state um but this i don't know i like i said i don't know too much about this but it almost just seems like it was the bureaucracy that wanted to sell them out um the british labor party and the trade union congress seemed like they had a lot to a lot of gains to protect and they didn't want to be seen as supporting these trade unionists anti-colonial folks which seems a little nuts when you say it out loud but like also understandable presumably uh the big government would have come down on them in quite a harsh way had they kept up their support but um that is basically just to say there's a concrete example of what Connolly points to as a place where revolutionary agency can be uh seemingly at odds with the typical stagist determinate like Marxist stagist view of history, because it's like, wait a minute, these people don't even have like a mass industrial proletariat yet, but for some reason they're more, they can be pushed in a more radical direction than the, you know, schmucks in UCU at the trade union Congress. Um, and that's, that's a really fascinating idea. And it is just something to say that like, I don't know how many times have we said this on the show that like when you're studying nuance or so or when you're studying uh, history or sociology, you need nuance and you need to be able to understand that, okay, things don't always play out in this stagist view of things because wait a minute, the peasant is being pro more progressive than the industrial proletariat. What the hell? It's all, yeah, it's all really fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is one? Why are the the Irish working class inside of Ireland more radical? But then mm. also, why are Irish emigres in mm. Britain or in America, like the either in like the Chartist movement or what have you? Why are they one so radical, and also like why do they take up leadership positions in so many yeah. key labour struggles in history, kind of thing? Mm. Um, yeah, that's one of the things the essay and Connolly are grappling with is like why. Why does the Irish working class present itself as so much more radical when mm. under a kind of like what we might describe as sort of crude Marxist understanding, you would say, well, no, the industrial capital, the proletariat of mm. England ought to be more radical. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was really interesting, though, was that um, he makes the argument that, well, Connolly makes the argument, and it's described in this essay, that what set in train this this what what made it possible for the Irish working class to be so radical was the very specific conditions of British colonialism in Ireland. Yeah. Um, he makes the case that if it weren't for the fact that there had been uh, British colonialism in Ireland, Connolly seems to believe that the Irish probably would have come up with or would have developed a kind of like landowning capitalist class of their sure. own. Yeah. But it's purely because this whole system was sort of like forced on the, on the Irish from without mm. that it actually created these kind of like pockets of continued resistance and a familiarity with a legacy that existed prior to English colonisation because the the social relations that were imposed by England upon Ireland were foreign rather than mm. uh domestically had a domestic origin kind of thing yeah so he's sort of making the case that it's purely be it's not it's not it's, be it's predicated upon the conditions of colonialism that allowed for this degree of resistance to mm. colonialism and the capitalist social relations that were enforced by the colonizers kind of yeah thing. i think when i first went through this essay and saw it and read that it kind it kind of almost came across as a little idealistic because i don't think i really understood it fully because there are a couple other thinkers who were bought into this discussion. A fellow named Maria Tagui, who wrote a lot about uh, the Inca and Spanish colonization um, of like what would become Peru. And this idea of like this, you could say like germ inside of these people that is like this inherent distrust of capitalism and this inherent... Uh, this, that, that, that there's always just this constant struggle with capitalism that is much more constant and much more like there than it would be if they had just developed capitalism themselves. Almost can come across as a little idealistic because it can be like, you know, almost a little bit like, hey, you remember when we did things in the good old fashioned way? Like that, that kind of like looking to the past and romanticizing the like, you know, communal Irish peasant. But when you have a, like, material understanding of it, like, it does actually kind of fit. It makes sense that, you know, if you have this system forced upon you instead of uh, developing it yourself, it will always seem alien no matter what. And that feeling will always be there, kind of no matter how many generations pass while you're still under this colonial system. Um, Connolly basically says that any argument against... Um, Co colonialism or anything like that uh, that isn't in the end a critique of capitalism is obviously going to wind up being bad. Um, 
I really thought it was interesting. There's an essay in here that's cited that Connolly wrote about like a Celtic revival and about trying to bring back the Irish language. And he's kind of responding to that. I think it's worth quoting it short. He just says, the chief enemy of a Celtic revival today is the crushing force of capitalism, which irresistibly destroys all national and racial characteristics. And by sheer stress of economic preponderance, reduces a Galway or a Dublin, a Lithuania or a Warsaw to the level of a mere secondhand imitation of Manchester or Glasgow. I think that rocks. And that is basically just like a really that's just like a material understanding of what can come across as i think a little idealistic but eh, it checks out yeah it's almost an appeal to the nationalists right like yeah yeah, yeah. the only way to save your the specificity <laughs> of your culture or your history is to be a socialist and resist the, yeah the sort of homogenization the system mm. of homogenization which is capitalism i mean mm. you have to read the manifesto to yeah to have that that process described to you kind of thing. yeah exactly and he basically says you can't separate the destruction of Gaelic culture from the emergence of capitalism which again goes back to the you know the cause of Ireland cause of socialism or whatever um, but yeah it is yeah it's fascinating and it is like the author says here it makes nationalism become a contested ground which I thought was a really fascinating way of looking at it because it's like yeah don't just concede nationalism by saying all having this liberal cosmopolitan view of all nationalism bad you're conceding really valuable territory to um, Judds and reactionaries and the bourgeoisie, frankly, mm -hmm. like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the other people that he quotes from is an essay by, a apparently famous essay by Antonio Gramsci mm. about the conditions of the peasantry in Southern Italy compared to the sort of like advanced um, proletariat of the North who are industrial and work in the factory kind of thing. Um, and Gramsci's very much falling into this trap of imagining, as I say, the industrial proletariat as being the advanced vanguard of the proletariat, yeah. the only people capable of advancing history, uh, whereas the peasantry have this sort of like non-historical kind of like romantic and traditionalist worldview, mm. which is totally incompatible with any kind of worldview which is progressive or forward-looking. Um and Gramsci's kind of describing in a very sort of conventional Marxist fashion um, the history and the continued existence and legacy of the lives of the peasantry as being um, a social form in disintegration and not a social form which can in any way um, fashion itself into an active force for, histor for historical change kind of thing. Mm. Um, which kind of brings us on to these... these uh, the latter stages of this essay where there's a discussion of two different ways of viewing mm. history. Mm. Um, Conveniently named. History one and <laughs> history two. Um, yeah, I can't recall. Somebody, Chakrabarti is the yeah, person who, I believe. Who, um, who these ideas are being drawn from. Um, I don't know. I thought I was in a position to describe them, but maybe I'm not. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, because I probably am, because I had to ask you to explain this to me beforehand. But history one, I think, is more or less what we can just describe as a stagist view of history, which is like kind of the typical narrative of the transition to capitalism, right? Whereas history two is a little bit more nuanced and it kind of has within it this understanding that the social relations inside of capitalism can contain like, I think he says antecedents of themselves, like... And that basically is why he brings that up is because the Inca past as described by Maria Tagui and the Irish past as described by James Connolly 
have this antecedent in them. They quote unquote remember a time when things were different to capitalism because they had this history and this mode forced upon them. Um, and that isn't to say, I think, that Deepesh, that is his first name, nice. I believe, Deepesh Trakrabarty, um, is throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the sense of, like, don't ever use history one or history two. I think the point, right, was just that they are two different ways of viewing history. Um, no, maybe no less valuable, mm. but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think they're both to be read together as mm. to enable a discussion, a description of history and the histories of transitions. Um, but he's basically saying that the those things which fit into the history one category of the emergence of capitalism um, are the kind of like antecedents or preconditions which are historically necessary for the development of capitalism. Mm. And then history two are the the antecedents or the preconditions for the development of capitalism which linger within the capitalist system because they can't be excised mm. but they're not actually necessary for its ongoing reproduction. Sure. So a good example of this is the degree to which the sort of historical sentiments that continue to exist internal to the Irish working class in this period, which are legacies of their pre-colonial social life, are maintained, as we were saying before, because of the structure of colonialism, because the, because the social system was of uh, capitalist colonialism was imposed from without those things necessarily linger in a way that mm. they may well have been erased if there'd been a natural transition. But they're not like um, dead or disintegrating histories in the way that Gramsci's describing the peasantry mm. in Italy as being sort of like um, sort of necessarily disintegrating forms <laughs> of social life. Uh. Um, they It is necessary that they linger for the continued existence and ongoing development of the capitalist logics in their colonial context and their mm. colonial form. I think I, I think one thing I brought up before we started recording when we had just kind of first gone through this is I don't think Marx necessarily did us a favor by describing the French peasantry as a sack of potatoes insofar as the specificity of that analysis has just been uh, uh, put upon all peasants in a way. And I mean, like, I think it's brought up in this, but that like, the way that Marx describes the French peasantry in the 18th Brumaire is extremely specific. And he's making the point that this isn't all peasants or this reactionary and dumb and idiots and atomized, but like they're already petty bourgeois, right? By that point in France. And like, you can't have that analysis of just like the dumb peasantry is never going to be able to do anything because they're just a bunch of dumb peasants and apply that to all peasants for all time. Because I mean, as we see here, there is like this, like, I don't know, this history too that belongs to like the Irish peasants where this kind of like old school peasantry attitude is what's given them the like fire in their belly to be anti-capitalist in a way that a more quote unquote advanced working class could never be. Um, and that's, I think, something that blew my mind reading this was being like, wait a minute, the peasantry can be progressive in a sense, like more so than an industrial proletariat. I like stood up and cheered. I was like, there is still hope. <laughs> Jack the Digger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that I've always been meaning to take a look at and did take a look at for this um for this episode was the 
letter and reply that Vera Zazulich, mm. the Russian, the early Russian Marxist, a member of the Emancipation of Labour grouping, um, the letter that she sent to Marx, because she sent this short letter to Marx saying, I know you say this stuff about in capital about like the the necessity of the stage transition from like feudalism to capitalism to communism, what have you, but do you see any progressive potential in the structure of the Russian mir? And it's sort of like, that's the sort of peasant commune in Russia mm. and uh, that uh, communal and collective structure for farming. Uh, is there any potentially positive legacy that can we, can we develop that into socialism or do we have to follow the strict stagist view that you seem to have laid out? And part of Marx's reply is that like, obviously I can't go into this in great detail, but this stagist structure that I've described is basically designed to describe the development of capitalism mm. in Western Western Europe. Mm. It's not meant to be read um, as a sort of totalizing social structure, to, totalizing structure for the development of history all over the world in well, all contexts, kind too. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. impossible to have that reading because, like, as we've come across the idea, like, w this is the failure of the promise. This is the failure of the bourgeois promise, right? The liberal promise. It's like while there is a bourgeoisie, that implies that there are others who aren't. So you can't have this like view of history for like the quote unquote more advanced Western like proletariat and leave out all of the like countries that are necessarily peasants you know what i mean so yeah um that kind of made me think about a like this is kind of getting into some like whoa dude stuff but about the like in terms of formal and real subsumption like what could that possibly look like for a transition to socialism um and i think we've already kind of come across this idea right when we looked at fundamental principles of like the fairly arbitrary like uh low communism and then high communism where you kind of stamp out all of those ideas but like the new society kind of having like marks of the old or whatever in terms of uh i don't know what a world might look like with the transition to social labor time planning um i don't know it just got me thinking about that there's not there's not a whole lot to say on it right now as the thoughts are still cogitating but like i think we have come across this idea looking to the future and not necessarily just the past in terms of like well, the state might still be around for one thing and it won't do the things that the state does now, but you know, you'll still go to a store and kind of quote unquote exchange stuff to get other things to consume. There'll be means of consumption up until the point where it isn't necessary because the productive forces are so developed, right? Where you just kind of like, yeah, I don't know, just kind of take it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Just got me thinking about like real subsumption and stuff like that it's yeah. a really fascinating idea i love it whenever we come across an idea that's so abstract that you can just kind of throw it at other things and be like well, how it works <laughs> you just made me think that, that maybe there's a possible way of interpreting sort of um very crude marxist understandings of history which is like history happened in the french revolution mm. and the sort of general transition <laughs> into capitalism and then there isn't really any historical development and then we have the next revolution and the history yeah. does something again yeah and then so all, all, all the con the conditions internal to that period of time which we describe as being the capitalist mode of production mm. are fixed and therefore all strategy that we might develop at one point mm. applies to all other points in time. Um, whereas there's this other way of looking at it where like um, history continues to develop during these sure. periods. And it's a daunting prospect, right? Because mm. it means that the things that have happened before won't necessarily work again. Mm. You like You only have to read something like E.P. Thompson's description of the mm. the development of the working class in Britain as being very as being 
specific and therefore the development of the workers movement has been specific to pre-industrial culture of pre-industrial the pre-industrial working class of britain um as being something which was still very heavily connected to pre-capitalist forms um and that exit that 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 continued experience of sort of pre-capitalist forms but then also like the the non-factory-based forms of capitalist production that came before the introduction of the sort of industrial revolution or the onset of the industrial revolution was very specific to the early development of chartism and the Mm. british trade union movement um but those conditions don't exist anymore yeah and in the same way that like those conditions that represented the conditions of potentiality that were contained within the history of Irish colonialism or British colonialism in Ireland don't really exist anymore. Mm. And I guess what if there's something to take away from this essay, it's very much what he's saying. Like, you don't don't take any piece of history and the theories which stem from that piece of history and apply it to all history and all social yeah. conditions anywhere in the world and anywhere in the human life world kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but rather to keep an eye to the specifics of mm. in all contexts kind of thing. Yeah. But it's quite daunting because it's like, well, what kind of agent are we looking for yeah. and how do we rally them? Yeah. Where do they come from? Yeah, exactly. You know? Like, I mean, in some ways it's reminiscent to me of what we, maybe it was a throwaway topic and maybe it'd be good to develop it more but or to develop our understanding of it more, but something that Mike, that we read Mike McNair say where it's like, maybe we need to move beyond... Um, politicking and the the propagation of communist ideas in the factory and around the industrial working class mm. and develop a much more uh, an active a revolutionary strategy i suppose which is predicated <laughs> on uh the community rather than mm. the workplace yeah kind of thing well yeah i mean they all fall prey to like the same economic laws of motion so it'd be a waste yeah, to yeah, just yeah. leave these people out I remember I, a long time ago, I came across, we, you know what we should do is we should actually read, I, I know this is a little not in our real house, but it's a materialist show. We should try and read some Darwin yeah. because I remember a long time ago, I came across this idea of like evolution is not this like linear thing where it's like you start with little bird and then big bird eventually is working towards the being the biggest bird. And eventually everything it does is getting <laughs> to that point. And eventually big bird is getting their COVID shot. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, don't, don't get me started. <laughs> Avian flus. Um, but the, it, it was trying to make the point that like evolution is something that's much more like everything all just kind of happens at once. And like it happens in response to these external factors. So it's like, you know, the typical example of like the Galapagos bird the bird that eats the big nuts has to have the big beak, right? So it's like evolution isn't something that goes like this. The listener can't see what I'm doing, but it's not something that's like a gradual slope going upwards. It's something that is like much more static and like, but I mean, I don't know. I've always kind of tried to apply that idea to a theory of history and it's kind of a little bit harder because obviously we have like external things that affect the way in which the class moves and sometimes it moves all at once and we call those things revolutions and then the class struggle that is constant all around us molds us in kind of different ways that I don't know we necessarily understand because they just aren't necessarily as obvious. But like, yeah, also what you're saying, like history is always happening, even if we don't recognize every day as history. And the class is always being molded into something new. Um, Not something new, but something different, I suppose, if that makes sense. But yeah, I don't know. What I'm trying to say is we should read some Darwin. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, another thing, just on what you were saying that I really found fascinating is we kind of talked about this already, but just the idea of like the specificity of his analysis and the kind of like quote unquote nationalism in his analysis, but also the implicit internationalism that is completely necessary. And this was only re this theory, these theories were only really developed because of what happened with the Irish proletariat being thrown under the bus by the British trading in bureaucracy or the British proletariat or whatever. Um, and so it's really a fascinating set of ideas that has this like nationalist aspect to them, but also this internationalist aspect and how they're both necessary at the same time. Um, it's, it is, yeah, there's, I don't know. It's fascinating. The implications for like, I don't know, neo-colonial, I guess, like, uh, class struggles is, is really interesting, but it's also like, what does that mean for like the core? I don't know. It's really interesting. Yeah. What's, what really interested me about the latter sections of this essay was he begins to develop this um, sort of comprehensive analysis which situates the Irish working class inside or to internal to the development of capitalism and takes this view which is very much that the conditions of existence of the Irish working class in the later stages of the 19th century and into the early stages of the 20th century are essential to an understanding of the development of capitalism, mm. even though the conditions of their existence were very much not what you think of as being the prototypical industrial working class. Mm. They were not... Uh, employed all year round in a specific factory location they were they fulfilled the function of itinerant workers um and immigrant workers in the uk but also in in britain but also um they represented uh they did a huge amount of the seafaring a sort of navying work that was uh central to the circulation of commodities in all of northern um, the sort of North Atlantic. What is navy? Isn't a word ever. Is that like? I think they're just navy? people who work on ships. Okay. There's a navy. <laughs> a navy. I've never come across that word. I don't know. Yeah, look it up. Because <laughs> um, we're not going to fact check it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not fucking like whatever. <laughs> um, but also like they're being taken as slave. They're being taken mm. as um, indentured servants. We learned a lot about the history of indentured servitude when we were reading about the early development of the. Um, American working class mm. in the sort of pre-revolutionary period. So uh, go check out that episode. Philip Fawner episode. Um, but also they were essential to the development of the sort of itinerant nature of the certain sections of the American working class in the beginning of the 20th century. So he's making the case that the develop, developing capitalism in this period of time was much more reliant on this kind of labour than people thought. They, mm. The Irish working class didn't represent... It's almost like a global Irish working class at this point <laughs> in, the, in the extent to which they've spread they across the, the sort world. of like... Um, the sort of like core portions of the world that were represented by capital or governed by capitalist mode of production at the time. Um the conditions of existence of the Irish working class are very central to capitalism. But then also this sort of history, these history two elements that they mm. carried around with them were also central to the development of the anti-capitalist movements 
in those portions of the world where they continue to exist as well. I'm thinking particularly here of like the development of industrial unionism in America mm. and the sort of um, the history of the IWW and other movements like that, which were very heavily centered around the sort of itinerant workers who would work in different industries mm. and throughout the year kind of thing. Um, so there's this sort of history one element, which is um, preconditions and conditions necessary to the development of capitalism, which is represented by what the work, the Irish working class contributed to the development of capitalism. But then there's history two element, which is those things which they carried with them, which capitalism mm. couldn't eradicate, predicated on the nature of their existence, but was also central to the development of the working class movement at the time as well and its resistance yeah. to capitalism. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because he makes the point in this that he's like, clearly there's a connection between the transitory nature of the Irish worker and the development of the like one big union, revolutionary spontaneity kind of attitude. I really found that fascinating. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's something that still needs to cogitate a bit. Yeah, but it's fascinating. I mean, it, it, it's still... It still seems like quite a romantic description. If you just sure. say that the Irish working the Irish. class had this sort of sense of communality yeah. that stemmed from their ancient Celtic tribal yeah. roots, yeah. which led them to um, affiliate to industrial unionism and the sort of one big union concept kind of mm. thing. But um, this essay is seeking to give that tendency a material basis. Mm. Um, and so it's, as you say, interesting to cogitate on yeah. yeah 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 i don't know i don't know i don't know how much else i have left to say on this essay but this idea is we should i don't know we we need to come across some more developed ideas on revolutionary agency that is beyond just saying the proletariat dude they're gonna do it don't worry about it um because this really was fascinating to be like i mean you need to look at the like real agency that exists not necessarily just like on paper where this agency is because as we've said that there is this like formal subsumption and real subsumption to capitalism that like different groups go to grow, go through and that that actually affects their agency um yeah it's definitely something i'd like to develop and i mean potentially try and adapt to today it'll lead me per perhaps back to my third world as maoist roots mm -hmm. um but we'll see um yeah it's fascinating though yeah 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 mm. yeah 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 um, yeah what I'm keen to take away from this is just yet more fodder for the sort of like um, specificity specificity reading of history mm. and not to get too bogged down in generalities but to uh, see history as messy and an unfolding process mm. Mm. and to sort of tie these ideas to concepts that we've going around and around a bit with sort of what represents the elements of continuity that we see in history and what mm. represents the elements of change that we see in history and how do the two overlap? Um, yeah. It's strange, Dan, when you have a more s specific understanding of history that class is always at the center of it. Mm. It's class doing history, perhaps? <laughs> I'm sure someone said that in a much better way than me. <laughs> the class does history. Marx and Engels, 1848. History is the class doing. History. <laughs> History is the class doing. <laughs> History is the doing of the classes. <laughs> um, well, we can kind of say we've read we've read some Gramsci now. Yeah, yeah, we've read yeah, Gramsci yeah. and some James Connolly. Yeah, I read all the prison notebooks in this essay. <laughs> um, I was really interested at when we started the show and we in reading um, Miliband's book. Um, 
when he brings up Gramsci as like basically says that like few people have really tried to understand uh, why the proletariat hasn't developed in this way that it should. And where's the revolutionary agency as Gramsci was one of the people to like actually try and develop that theory um, a little bit more. But I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of agency. And I think that like the thing that got me interested in it was coming across those ideas in Mike McNair, the idea of like the core proletariat versus the proletariat of the periphery. Um, and the nation state is the firm and all of this stuff. So it's really fascinating. I don't know. And it helps a lot as like, you don't just want to be someone who goes around being like the proletariat dude, the proletariat dude, capitalism, bro. It's all just goddamn capitalism. Um, it is all just goddamn capitalism, but yeah, it's good having that nuance and that specificity to understand the world. Is that true? Yeah. I suppose it is. Yeah. What's good about this outlook or sort of an outlook that could be inspired by this, I suppose, Mm. um, is that... It allows you to circumnavigate or circumvent the question that a lot of Marxists at the beginning of the 20th century were asking themselves, which is like, why didn't the industrial proletariat do what it was supposed to do? Yeah. Like, what went wrong? Idiots. You know, yeah. like that, that that train of thought, which is represented by the Frankfurt School, but also mm. Lukash or mm. uh, Gramsci, where it's just like something went wrong. Mm. Um, whereas this kind of outlook offers you the, the get out, which is to say there is no should. Yeah. There is no ward. Yeah. Uh, there's just radical potentialities, I yeah. suppose. Well, I also think, too, that, like... they come and go with history. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, like, when you ask that question, you're you're getting a little dangerously close to idealism because it's like, it must just be all of the advertisements on the television that has stopped the proletariat. But it's like, no, you can still... You can come to, like, this conclusion of why hasn't the proletariat done what it's supposed to do, quote-unquote, Uh you can come to that conclusion through a material understanding of history. Um, and it's, this is, it's really, really fascinating. I would like to have seen how Connolly's thought would have developed had he not been shot in the back of the head by a bunch of, like, assholes from England. But, you know, what are you going to do? Um, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, also, it's almost like a bit of a Pandora's box question, though, because it's like, oh, God, do I really want to know why the, like, proletariat hasn't developed in the, like, hasn't fulfilled its historical mission of getting rid of capitalism um, i'm not sure that i do yeah yeah, yeah it'll yeah. take too long it just leads down a route of like more and more pieces of red string on a bigger noble yeah, um, exactly. pin board you know it's just like yeah yeah, yeah. one day we'll master history i hope so if there's anything <laughs> i took from the hillary putnam it's that we're just working towards a totality <laughs> of understanding that is easily achievable yeah 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 yeah, yeah. we'll get there this podcast. This podcast is well, that box. Well, achieve that human feat. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny, though, because it's like when you do look at history, like, it's almost, it's this weird kind of two-sided thing where it's like, when you try to have this specific understanding of history, okay, I need to take the Irish Civil War and the Easter Rising for what it is and really delve into the reasons for why this, uh, all of this stuff happened in Ireland as opposed to trying to, like, take other things that happened and plot them on to Ireland. Um, you get this weird kind of like, okay, everything is completely unique in its own way. Every historical event is completely like its own thing. But then you also get this like, wow, it is kind of all the same because like, you know, to sound basic, like class struggle is the engine of history. Right. But it, it isn't just that simple. I don't know if that makes sense, but like, yeah. Yeah. It's still and capitalism. It's still capitalism, folks. Yeah. Not a fan. Not a fan. <laughs> wow. Well, um, 
I guess it's worth restating the long forgotten um, <laughs> sort of theoretical underpinnings of this podcast in the search mm. for the auxiliary, auxiliary yeah, statements. We're going to find and, them. <laughs> and the general principles. I guess the general principle is it's still capitalism mm. and the auxiliary statements is all the historical specificity. Mm. Anyway. We've kind of come full circle on that question that was put forward when discussing the auxiliary statement because on the Irish working class. The case that we came up with was this. Marx's attitude towards well, not the, this, the Irish working class. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, was it in this that they said that Eleanor Marx was like, damn, Irish people, they're the most revolutionary ones. Uh-huh. It's like, ah, oh, cool. That's very cool. I'd like to know more about Eleanor Marx. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, all right. Well, uh, we will be back next week with something good. Or in a few weeks' time. Or oh, Yeah, that's right. Well, we'll be back next week with well, something, something good. Something but it probably won't be great. a podcast. Yeah. Um, we should have said it at the start. Yeah, I know. That we decided to perhaps move yeah, to two-weekly two, uh, two release schedule for a little while. If you're not on our uh, YouTube channel, constantly refreshing the page, waiting for us to release things, first of all, you should be. And secondly, you won't have noticed that we've been putting up... Uh, more casual chats on YouTube. We did one last week in place of a podcast episode. Um, might do one next week if we can come up with things to talk about. That's the plan. Um, and yeah, for now, every two weeks for the show. Because um, <laughs> we were like, we'll read this essay and then we'll read this like very long book that like Connolly wrote on the history of the Irish working class. We'll do that. And it was like, <laughs> we saw each other a couple days ago and it's like, you've only read the essay, right? And it's like, yeah. <laughs> What are you gonna we, do? Aspire. we aspire. We aspire to be able to put a bit more work into each episode by lengthening the time between mm. the release of the episodes. But that does not mean <laughs> yeah. that there will be any uh, dearth yeah. of auxiliary statements content. You're That's just going to have to look a bit more further afield. Very true. Go subscribe to the YouTube channel mm. and um, mm. refre- refresh it constantly. Refresh it constantly. Yeah. And also, if you do want to uh, talk to us, or comment and tell us how stupid we are, that's the place to do it. Yeah. Because you can... Jack monitors that and he's, a, <laughs> he's, he's good at replying. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be like, hey, thanks, cheers. The broad beans are, in fact, doing quite well. Thank you for asking. Um, so, yeah, go comment yeah. on our YouTube channel if you have something you want to say. Um, someone did just ask us about our broad beans and I realized that I haven't gone to see mine in a very long oh, time. No. So they might have all been dug up by the goddamn foxes. And it's been freezing recently. So who knows what's happened to my poor beans. But I'm sure they're fine. They'll be fine. They're hardy. They They're know hardy. what to expect. <laughs> they know what to expect. <laughs> that was, for the listener, uh, there's a very nice old allotment lady who is constantly giving me advice, who knows a lot more than I do. And I was worried because I was like, I saved these beans and dried them out to be seeds from last year. And I'm worried that, like, they're not going to know what to do and they're not going to know what to grow. And she was like, don't worry. They know what to expect. And I was like, wow. The genetic memory of the broad <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They do know what to expect. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Um, all right. Should we end the charade? <laughs> yes, it should go on no longer. Yeah. Sorry if there's been traffic noise. Because we're right by a busy street. So, yeah. you know, I can't yeah, stop yeah. it. We we're not going to make any effort to mitigate that. <laughs> we're recording slightly earlier, so we may have actually it's had true. less traffic noise. I don't, there hasn't it's been true. any, like, angry beeping of horns or I anything. know. I know. In the interview Jack that we lives did, on a roundabout. And it's, yeah, it's yeah there's, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uh, <laughs> Honk and excessive honking of horns. In honking and hollering. Honking and hollering. In the interview we did with Bobby Wagner the baseball episode, at one point you can just hear an argument. It's like a guy honks his horn and a lady's like, fuck you. And he's like, fuck you. And I'm just there like embarrassed. Like, oh God, I hope you can't hear that. What are you going to do? Angry Brits, isn't it? 
Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the cultural specificity of yeah, the exactly. total existence of Great Britain. <laughs> yeah, God. This is what we've got to work with. Yeah, this is what we got to work with, guys. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, all right. Well, uh, support your local UCU officer. Maybe give them a nice back rub if you see them. Because they're all working very hard. And um, we will be back eventually. My name has been Jack. Irish Jack, as they call me. And uh, I will see you next time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Jack. I've been Dan. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Auxiliary Statements. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again. music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people too by king gizzard and the lizard wizard if you like this song you can check it out and much much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com be sure and follow us up on instagram twitter and facebook and if you like what you heard be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion till next time Whoa.